Welcome to episode 90 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher. And joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now. And Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. Today's episode is a lightning round Q&A episode where we will be answering a bunch of your questions and trying to keep our answers rather short so we can jump around to a handful of different topics and uh, answer a bunch of questions. So in today's episode, more specifically, we'll be talking about our thoughts on the benefits from a paleo-ketogenic uh, paleo diet. We'll be discussing what to do if you're dealing with dental issues from sugar consumption. We'll be talking about our experiences eating 5,000 to 6,000 calories per day. And we'll also discuss the best time to eat the carrot salad, among many other things. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, you can send those in to j at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's J-A-Y at jayfeldmanwellness.com. Or feel free to leave those in the comments if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're new to the podcast, I'd highly recommend that after you listen through this episode, you go back to uh, listen to episodes one through seven, where we took some time to build a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health is concerned. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you're dealing with any symptoms that are either related or unrelated to the many questions that we'll be digging into today, maybe you're dealing with chronic cravings and hunger, low energy or fatigue, chronic pain, weight gain, digestive symptoms, brain fog, poor sleep, hormonal imbalances, low libido, or various other low energy symptoms or chronic health conditions, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, let's get started. Let's go on and do some, some lightning round questions. Basically, there's a, a handful of questions on uh, YouTube and elsewhere that I just, you know, we just don't have time to respond to all the comments to, but, you know, I figured we could do some quick minute or two answers uh, from both sides. If, if it, you know, if it becomes a slightly longer conversation, it's fine, but just trying to give some quick answers to these questions that we don't have the time to get to um, necessarily on each of the comments, but this way we can, we can uh, get through a bunch quickly. So uh, it looks like Adiita, who had sent a question earlier, I think this is the same person, says, can you speak about fish oil, krill oil, etc., and why they show benefits in studies in reduction of inflammation and cholesterol reduction? It's difficult to argue people outside of the pro-metabolic realm regarding omega-3s, and very less people scientifically argue regarding the dangers of omega-3s. I, th I think we get the gist, but... Just for reference, so we talked about this, you know, omega-3s and PUFA in general extensively in an earlier episode. I'll link to that one. And we've talked about it in terms of its effects on oxidative stress, its ability to lower cholesterol, and some of its other issues in other episodes too. So I'll link to all of those. But 
in essence, the questions here in terms of reducing inflammation and cholesterol reduction, the first thing I would say is in terms of cholesterol reduction, we talked about this in the fatty liver podcast, how basically the way that these omega-3s are reducing cholesterol is by causing oxidative stress that prevents the export of fat from the liver, which is actually something that drives fatty liver disease pathology. It's, a, it's not a, a beneficial thing, but it happens to reduce LDL cholesterol. So that's looked at as a good thing. But I think when you look at the mechanisms and then the broader picture, again, we've talked about uh, why we don't want to just lower cholesterol just because and the problems with that concept in previous episodes as well. So I'll link to those. But uh, in general, that is how those mechanisms go on. And, and I would say that's not particularly beneficial, uh, even though it does lower that marker. And then in terms of the reduction in inflammation, we did talk about this in those previous episodes that I'll link to. But basically what we have is an immunosuppression that will reduce the presentation of inflammation, but it does it by inhibiting the immune system function in the same way that an immunosuppressive medication might do so in an auto, you know, like something that's prescribed for autoimmune conditions where yes, it reduces the inflammation in the short term, but the way that it does it causes some long-term problems and a ton of side effects. So you see that parallel presentation with omega-3s. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I think I've talked about this extensively. We've talked about it extensively and then I've talked about it extensively in multiple places but essentially, um, and I think I even talked about the study, uh, I think we talked about it here at one point, where they gave rats fish oil versus different types of oils, and, and after they presented them, I think with a bacteria C. robidentium, which mm-hmm. causes uh, colitis in, in, in mice or rats, and essentially the rats that got omega-3s, they didn't get colitis, but they got sepsis and died, <laughs> um, and that was because of the immunosuppressive effect. And then the other thing, so there is there is some extent of immunosuppression from the omega threes. It's like we don't have, I guess, exact amounts and what how that what level that happens in humans yet because all omega threes are all the rage right now. Um, but we definitely see some immunosuppressant effects, and I think there was even a study showing some like dampening effects on immune cells in older adults from omega threes. I'd have to find it. Um, I remember reading something along those lines. And then as far as the as far as the anti-inflammatory effect, specifically besides an immunosuppressive effect, there is competition with the Cox and LOX enzymes and some of the mediators that are produced from them via the oxidation of these different fatty acids, whether omega-3 or omega-6, um, that if you, like the different omega-3 mediators are called pro-resolving mediators, and they tend to they they tend to have like somewhat anti-inflammatory effect compared to the omega-6 and they compete with omega-6. So there's a balance and essentially um, taking omega-3s can have, I think Dr. Pete has called it like an, an aspirin-like effect in that sense where they're, they're, they're like kind of out-competing the omega-6. So, and with that, with that in mind, the, the solution would be to keep both PUFA lower, both omega-3 and omega-6. And then if you were worried about inflammation, you could use something like aspirin or even a lot of the juices and fruits and things that we discuss in general have anti-inflammatory effects and can inhibit those different enzymes, the Cox and LOX enzymes. And then the other thing too to keep in mind is that omega-3 and omega-6 are both extremely um, extremely liable for lipid peroxidation, especially compared to monounsaturated and saturated fats. So even if omega-3s do have that anti-inflammatory effect through 
some type of inhibitory or competitive action at the the uh, the Cox and Lox enzymes that produce the the different inflammatory mediators, the eicosanoids, they still are liable to oxidation before they even get there. And I actually just discussed a study the other day, I think, with Hans, where I was talking about how omega threes oxidize even in the digestive tract, and omega threes and omega sixes were were oxidized even if they weren't oxidized before when they get into the digestive tract and they're exposed to stomach acid, bile acids, digestive enzymes, other food products, etc. They oxidize, so you're already getting oxidation products before they even make it to your bloodstream. Even if you have the most pure krill mm-hmm. oil in triglyceride form, or your your alpha linoleic acid flaxseed oil that you keep in the freezer with liquid nitrogen on the top so that it doesn't oxidize, whatever your the crazy mechanism is, as soon as you put it in your mouth, there's going to be oxidation occurring from the those fatty acids. So you have an immunosuppressive effect. You have um, perhaps the anti-inflammatory effect via inhibition or competition with omega-6 at the specific enzymes, which can be also adjusted with the plant compounds that we discuss in the fruits and also aspirin on a regular basis. Then you have the, so that kind of defeats the purpose of that. Then you have the, um, you have the pro-oxidative and lipid peroxidative effects of these fats, which should you technically want to avoid. And then you see, as Jay mentioned, that pro- lipid pro-lipid peroxidation and oxidative effects um or reactive oxygen species producing effects inside the liver cells where omega-3s lower your production of ldl by damaging the i think it's lipoprotein b100 or creating an issue inside the, the endoplasmic yeah and in, in creating uh apoB b100 yeah mm-hmm. or creating issues um inside the endoplasmic reticulum reticulum as far as lipid peroxidation goes for the exportation of cholesterol. And as you briefly mentioned, Jay, cholesterol is a proxy marker for an issue, not actually the issue. And that's kind of being more covered now in the research than it was before. Um, And again, the idea of the benefits of omega-3s come from the lipid hypothesis, which has over and over been discussed to not necessarily be reality. And then even looking at some of the other compounds, I just talked about an article where statins, which lower cholesterol, can actually, and through other various mechanisms, can increase risk of diabetes, heart failure, and atherosclerosis. <laughs> so um, the lipid hypothesis is kind of falling on its head uh, based on the research that we've been looking at, and looking at it through that lens with omega-3s isn't helpful either. So overall, there's just, could there be some anti-inflammatory effects? Yes. But at what cost and what are the mechanisms? And we discussed those before, and then there's some reasons there as well. Yeah, and keeping the short-term versus long-term in mind. Again, short-term reduced inflammation, long-term immunosuppression, shift toward from Th1 to Th2, which drives generally autoimmunity, and uh, you know drives like the long-term effects of these things, driving further inflammation and oxidative stress. Even if uh, even if in the short term there's some again some short-term uh, anti-inflammatory effects. Yeah. All right, on to the next. So the reminder asks, and this is specifically for you, Mike, uh, why do you eat a carrot with every meal? I thought the benefit was in eating it on an empty stomach. Are there other benefits and or reasons to eat it with a meal too? He says, excuse my ignorance, genuinely asking, thank you. Well, I am 50% rabbit. I'm just <laughs> um, I don't know. So for me, i separate my meals i think i've discussed this before about three hours apart because of migrating motor complex 
Uh, it takes about three hours to work. There's a series of rhythmic contractions in the intestine. And so I found that I digest best with the with those breaks in between and having solid meals rather than snacking throughout the day. So that just with that paradigm in general, it put the carrot salad with my meals or I don't even do a carrot salad. I just eat the carrot. Um, and what I found is like, I like having the vegetable fiber with the meat and the different proteins I have because I think it helps to manage um, the, I've talked about this before, like the protein fermentation in the colon being problematic. So some of the vegetable fibers and compounds are helpful there. And then I feel like the carrot still has that effect where it can pull things through, even if you're eating it with a meal. Um, and so I have like my meal will be the fruit and the whole fruit I eat, the fruit smoothies, the juice, all that with the carrot and what other, whatever other vegetable I'm going to eat. And then also the, uh, the whatever protein I was going to eat, if it's whey protein, if it's eggs, if it's steak, if it's seafood, whatever those options are, I think having all of them together has been helpful. And then having the care with every meal keeps me regular. So I have a, for me, I get maybe TMI for some people, but I have a bowel movement pretty much with each meal as long as I'm not working in the hospital. <laughs> um, so, and I like, I think regularity for the bowels, like I know it's woo woo and all this type of stuff, you know, from the modern medical perspective, it's not that important, but for me, like I think regular bowel movements are important, especially when you consider, you know, you whatever you have fermenting fermenting in the colon is you're having bacterial products produced. Depending on what you have going on in the microbiome, whatever it is, there may be some toxic products there. So if you can keep your bowels moving on a regular basis, you can kind of like you keep things moving through. You keep things. Uh, you can minimize perhaps some of your endotoxin exposure. And I think even Doctor Pete has talked about this, where a dentist was able to clear some of his patients um like oral issues by giving them laxatives to keep their bowels moving with the and the implication there was that the the lack of bowels moving on a regular basis was uh causing some type of maybe endotoxemia issue that was presenting with uh oral degradation or like guess periodontitis so i think i guess to summarize it and encapsulate it in an easy way is i have whole meals all together. I don't snack all the time. So having the carrot salad would kind of break that. I have my four main meals a day. Uh, I like having the the vegetable fiber and the fruit fiber and the meat all together to protect against the putrefaction in the colon. And then the carrot salad helps it keep me regular on a regular, like on a regular basis. And I think that that's important for bowel and general health overall, especially for me, because my main issues were always digestive. So I found that um, having it with each meal has been quite helpful. And then the other, I guess the last piece here to add in I, is that the fibers from fruits and vegetables can help to bind up some of the bile acids. Um, since I don't have a gallbladder, I'll tend to leak bile acids all the time. Or if I eat too much fat, I can get um, like a bile acid, huge bile acid release, which is really uncomfortable. And the vegetable fibers with a meal actually help to dilute that, that bile acid and pull some of those bile acids out. And the pulling some of the bile acids out can be helpful because the liver releases its toxins or excreted products in the bile acid so you're going to want to you know you're going to want to have something to pull those to pull those through yeah a lot of great points there and and of course a lot of it so many things you pointed to were individual things with you that that allow you to feel best and again partially due to some of your particular circumstances uh along with this as well uh, you know some people really like the carrot salad or carrot on its own some like it with food it shouldn't you know, when you have it with food, it should still be making it down, you know, through the colon and everything. It's not like that indigestible fiber would just get absorbed. Uh, so it, it should work, you know, just as well 
theoretically with with food and uh i don't know if there's any reason otherwise i think some people when they're doing the full carrot salad it's shredded you've got the oil and vinegar some people find that to be a little filling so i think that's part of the reason why they like to do it a little bit more away from food but i think either way should be uh about equal in terms of in terms of its effects as long as you know again considering the individuality there yeah if i had more time i would make it you know i could make it into a little salad so i could do like the shredded carrot and then like if whatever cooked vegetable i was having and then the protein and the juice on the side like it could have like a full nice meal but i don't have time now so it's just i literally sometimes i don't even peel the carrot i literally just bite the tip off and bite the back off and then throw it in the bag and I have four of those, and that's I eat one with each of my protein shakes during the day in the hospital because I have zero time to cook and prep some days. Like it's just too, and I'm too tired a lot of times, so I have to make it easy. And like that's what it's come to now. But other times, like I'll have the meal will start with some juice, and then maybe I can have my main protein source and all that with like the side of cooked vegetables that I like, and then I'll have maybe the carrot salad after with a uh, with a little bit of vinegar or a little bit of oil or maybe i'll do it before so it's just it depends on you know the context there's a constant process of adapting to your circumstances and figuring out what works mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely all right next question is from polsky cabaret uh he or she says jay and mike are you aware of dr sophia clemens and the paleo ketogenic diet she has real data from patients she cured she is also a neurobiologist this was a comment on our last uh, or one of our recent episodes with the uh, Nutrition with Judy uh, article. And uh, yeah, the. I think she's Paleo Medicina, right? Yeah, Paleo Medicina. Yeah. So they have a clinic, Bulgaria, Hungary, somewhere in Europe, I want to say. Uh, and they, you know, talk about how they have a lot of clients and patients who have a ton of benefits from various chronic health disorders and issues uh through a paleo ketogenic diet and we've talked about low carb keto paleo diets ad nauseum and there's a handful of episodes where we've talked about these things and we've also the i did want to point out and we've i think pointed this out quite a bit as well is that these things can have massive benefits but they come at a cost and we can get those benefits without those costs uh i think some of those huge benefits come back one to gut health and a huge reduction in endotoxin. Uh, and then the other major one being people who have trouble with glucose oxidation due to various blocks that are going on, mitochondrial respiration, do much better when they're forced to oxidize fat as opposed to trying to inefficiently oxidize glucose. And so I think that's where you see a lot of the benefits neurologically, although the gut is is also directly uh, directly involved there as well. Gut. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's uh, one study in particular, I know looking at the ketogenic diet, in mice and and showing improvements for epilepsy and finding that it was entirely a result of the gut effects. But again, I do think there's some benefits to moving away from inefficient glucose oxidation. But of course, the biggest point here is that you can do all of those things without the stress, the huge amount of stress caused by a low-carb diet. Uh, yeah, it's something we talk about quite often. So that's really my main thoughts there. Plus, the diet that they're switching them from again it's like yeah. the car it's the same carnivore argument right you're coming from like a lot of times from like an absolute crap diet to going to a nutrient dense diet that includes organs and meats and some vegetables and plant yeah. some different plant foods and whatnot and then you're just using your main source of energy as fat the 
The other thing I do know is like, well, they have, I have seen um, some discussion where some people did well with the diet and they have some case studies and I've seen the studies that they put out on some of their case studies, but other people have actually had poor poor response from the diet, but that kind of got shoved under the carpet, I guess, a little bit. So I think your mileage is going to vary with the diet and like, can that diet, can those diets help somebody? Is a low carb paleo diet better than standard American diet? Yes. Hands down. Like if you're not going to be eating a whole bunch of, you know, cooked poofa oils with, uh, and industrial ingredients and whatnot, you're going to move towards more of like a whole foods diet that has a bunch of different plants and mostly saturated monounsaturated fats and it's nutrient dense and has a uh, quality animal products. Um, and you're like trying to avoid a lot of the toxic foods, like, are you going to feel better? Are you going to get better results? Yes. But it's, it's a spectrum. There's a great, there's a gradation of options. Like if you were to add a little bit of fruit or juice to that, would it probably make the situation better and, and lower the amount of fat? I think so. I think so. That would make it better for a lot of people. I mean, there's a lot of studies showing the benefits of fruits and the compounds and fruits on numerous disorders as well. So like, yeah, did, are there some documented case for that? Sure. But there's also a lot of research documenting beneficial effects from fruits as well. So I don't think that the solution there has is necessarily based around the lack of carbohydrates. I think it's based on a whole host of other mediators, mediators or confounding factors that are being adjusted as well. So it's hard to make a case like, oh, it's and I'm not saying that the commenter is saying this, but the it's like, oh, because I think the perspective is, well, they're getting benefits with XYZ diet and but XYZ diet is focusing in on the idea that it's a lack of carbs but it's it may not really be the focus in on the lack of carbs it's like the people who focus on hormesis everything goes through the hormesis lens whereas for the ketogenic people it's everything goes through the low carb or lack of carb lens when it's like there's a lot of other things being adjusted there besides carbohydrates carbohydrates are just the things you're focusing on yep yeah absolutely i, I totally agree and i will say also you, you mentioned some of those situations and cases where things get swept under the rug that, you know, the, the, uh, the, the immense improvement, you know, the the cases where there's huge healing, you know, those are the ones that are advertised and the ones where people don't do so well, of course, are not advertised. I did have a client come to me who had been on that diet and I, I think it worked with, with them. I'm not hundred percent sure, you know, if he, if he had actually talked with them directly, but he was dealing with some binge eating disorders, some major mood struggles, anxiety, and, low mood and things like that. And uh yeah, was was feeling way better not on the the paleo medicina diet and felt like he had to be on the, you know, their paleo ketogenic diet to lose weight and things like that, but uh and felt like it was actually helping to keep things in check, like the binge eating disorder, but actually found that he was having way fewer cravings, feeling way more balanced, way better, his mood was way better when he was following a bioenergetic approach as opposed to the paleo ketogenic diet. So I think both of us have worked with clients who have come from multiple different backgrounds and who have, I've also worked with people who worked with other like prominent like coaches, like people who worked with like some very famous people, very YouTube stars and whatnot who were following whether it was carnivore or whether it was some uh, chronic fatigue syndrome or some autoimmune protocol who had worked like coached with some of these people and they didn't do super well. And then, you know, we like we made some adjustments and, you know, a lot of times coming from those diets, people have people have um, a lot of stuff in place that's good. 
you know, like they're eating high quality animal foods, they're avoiding grains, they're avoiding vegetable oils, they're avoiding foods that irritate them. And a lot of times what I know, what I, at least I do is I just work from where they're at and mm-hmm. increase carbohydrates, increase fruits, and then, you know, maybe manipulate the fat sources a little bit and maybe adjust the protein amounts. But it, a lot of people coming from paleo, coming from keto, coming from carnivore, coming from vegetarianism or veganism, like those people are actually and a lot of times easier to work with in my experience than somebody coming from a frank standard American diet. Because these other people have already tried to implement a lot of different things and are like very focused on making a difference for themselves and they want to get better and they already have like some good things on board because there's elements in each of these diets that are beneficial and there's some things that are problematic and it's like so you keep the beneficial things in place they're already there and then you make adjustments from that perspective so that's a lot of times those it, like they're actually a lot of people already made good steps already. You know, if you're coming from carnivore and you're eating mostly saturated, monounsaturated fats, you're prioritizing organ meats, you're okay with eating different shellfish, you're eating decent quality red meat on a regular basis, like, that's a good starting block to come from, plus you're already at an elimination diet, you've already eliminated everything. So, like, it's easy to add things in one at a time from that point and Mm -hmm. determine what's bothering you and what's not because all you've been eating is steak. (laughs) And the other thing, too, is, like, if you can only eat steak... Or you can only eat fruit or you can only eat, um, you know, paleo for like a year straight. It The idea of like dietary restriction, like it, it goes out the window to a large extent for, for people like that's like I eat a steak for three years. Like if you told me all I could eat was orange juice and steak and carrots right now, I that's like three times as much variety as I've had for three years. <laughs> so it's uh, a lot of a lot of times people are coming from a good like they can be coming from decent starting places when they've trialed some of these different diets because there are beneficial elements there. Although there are some fad diets out there that are absolute crap and I think make people a lot worse, but that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You touched on the few points that I was, I was going to make where while I do think there's a lot of issues with this sort of diet, I do actually find similar to you again, working with people who have, who have been in those places tends to be easier. And part of that, as you said, is, Maybe because of the place that they're in with the diet, although I think sometimes it can take them steps backward, uh, and sometimes pretty deep, especially if they've been doing it for a really long time. Uh, however, as you said, one of the things that makes it much easier is that this, these are people who are comfortable with not eating a standard American diet. They're comfortable with making dietary changes. They're people who are very involved in their health and, and who are constantly working to improve and are very committed, and I think that that does tend to lead to much better results regardless. Uh, so I think that, yeah, that's a, that's a huge piece of it, but yeah, some of that is despite the diet rather than because of the diet and just kind of comes with the territory. But, uh, yeah, as we said, there can be some benefits from the diet, but those long-term costs, especially add up over time. So when somebody's been on that diet for a long time, then that can, you know, sometimes take some time to dig out of that hole. But yeah, I also congratulate people who go on these diets and try to change their lifestyle instead of just get like getting handed a drug for whatever their situation is and and not taking responsibility for their health because i think a big piece in any person's journey or whatever you want to call it whatever whatever the feel good term i don't know whatever you term you want to use um a lot of that is about taking responsibility for your health and seeking out information and trying to figure out what works and beginning to test instead of handing your health your health off to somebody else mm-hmm. and this doesn't mean that you can't get help but there's a difference between 
having somebody do something for you versus going to somebody to, you know, discuss something with you or, or anything along those lines. So. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point too. Absolutely. All right. So we're going to continue with some lightning round questions again, trying to keep them short, uh, or at least as short as we can <laughs> with our normally long winded answers and, uh, see if we can get through a bunch of these again, as I was mentioning, uh, in the, as I mentioned previously, uh, these are questions from YouTube or sometimes they're sent in, uh, but just, or not only questions on YouTube, but some of them are just comments as well, but it's just hard to, or nearly impossible to get back to all the comments on social media and all the emails and everything. So this is a way to at least get through some of them quickly and, and share the answers with, with all of you guys so that, uh, it can hopefully help more people out. So with that in mind, Noga says, or asks which coral calcium supplement is recommended which does not contain heavy metals. So uh, normally my go-to here, which I think I got from you, Mike, was Pure Bulk. They have a good coral calcium. And if you are concerned about the quality, you can ask them for a COA once you have the, I think the lot number and uh, and they'll give that to you so you can confirm that there's, that there's not a significant amount of heavy metals. Yeah, so Pure Bulk is the Okinawan one. And there's a company in Okinawa that I actually reached out to um, with a, with a friend to try and figure out what the, you know, we were thinking of like releasing our own coral calcium supplement because it, I think it's been quite helpful overall for quite a, for many people that I've worked with who don't tolerate eggshell or dairy. Um, so we reached out to them and at the Okinawan coral calcium is pretty clean overall. The other one that I recommend or was using for a while was the eco pure one. So that one's from the coral calcium there's extracted from the Caribbean and those ones I didn't get a full breakdown on the heavy metals for. Now, the thing about coral calcium or the calcium supplementation in general is when you have a high amount of calcium, it does inhibit the absorption of a lot of the other of the other heavy metals. Um, so that's something to keep in mind when you're using a calcium supplement. And then as far as the as far as the coral goes with the coral calcium, they're taking in and filtering out and basically integrating that calcium with multiple other minerals and, and many other ways. So I think it's probably cleaner in general than like a limestone, like a pure calcium carbonate, um, which is just mined. So mm -hmm. I now there's may still like with the oyster shells, they do accumulate some of the other metals. But um, the other thing to keep in mind is that the coral calcium from both of these companies is above ground coral calcium. So it's it's coral from you know, hundreds of years ago, usually that was, that had pulled up the, the minerals and whatnot. Um, they don't harvest it from the ocean directly. So my assumption there is that the, the amount of heavy metals would probably be decreased as well because of the lack of pollution during the time periods when that coral was actually forming versus the coral that we have going on now. Um, so again, the Okinawan one I know is pretty clean, uh, because I like looked at and just like reached out to the company but the, the Caribbean one, I haven't ever heard back from the company. <laughs> so, and that was even because we were trying to see if we could source from them. Um, and they just never responded to requests or calls or anything like that. So that's, uh, yeah. And for reference, for anyone who is not aware, coral is alive. It's an animal. And so that's what you were saying as far as it filtering out uh, any potential or potentially helping to filter out heavy metals like is talked about with some other calcium sources like dairy, like milk, um, where that's coming through a cow, where 
the cow is filtering, basically filtering what's coming through that milk to make sure that it's not passing on harmful things to its uh, its offspring. So. To to a large extent, I mean, some things in oysters and coral and and cows and eggs, eggshells, they do get through. But I think that your your risk is decreased versus like a calcium, like a limestone, where you're literally just mining pure rock. Um, right. There's yeah. no filtering going on by the rock. <laughs> <laughs> no, none at all. All right, next question. And this must have been on one that we were talking about. Uh, I think it was a previous Q&A maybe that we were talking about uh, people dealing with teeth issues from sugar consumption and what you can do about it, how you can prevent it. Uh, so Andrew says, love the video. I've had a ton of tooth decay from sugar consumption. I can reserve fruit juices for the morning, have, have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. However... I go out socializing in the evenings up to five hours. I've major stress problems, which I've been able to control with the carbs. I bring jars of olive oil, collagen, protein, and OJ slash mineral water with raw honey and salt. And that seems to prevent falling into high adrenaline slash cortisol state. What can I do to keep my stress down while giving my mouth a break from sugar? So just for reference, we were talking about some things in that episode, like rinsing your mouth after having juices or sugary foods or even just after a meal as well as trying to have your food with a meal as opposed to just sipping juice throughout the day things like that and so what i would say here i mean a couple of things one is that minimizing that stress state is of utmost importance and so i would try to do what you can to do so and if you're having a a drink that is sugar-based, like with the orange juice and honey, in order to to do that, that's fine. I would probably just, you know, I'm assuming this isn't something that's happening that frequently. I mean, uh, this person's mentioning socializing in the evenings. I don't know if that's like an everyday thing or just once or twice during the week, but on a couple of times that that happens, if you just rinsed with the mineral water or regular water after, that should help to mitigate any of those negative effects from the juice or or honey, if again, if your teeth are particularly sensitive and you need to be concerned about that. So that'd be one thing I would think of. Uh, you know, yeah, it's going to be tough when you need food on the go, but, you know, until so you might have to make some of those choices. But as long as you're doing things in general to help with your dental health, all the things we talked about in that last episode or that episode when we discussed it, uh, that should be enough to mitigate, you know, one night where, where things are a little bit off. So I would, I would bring a, I would bring a smoothie that has fruit juice and whole fruit in it. Um, and then the other thing you could throw in there is calcium and magnesium with the fruit juice and whole fruit in the smoothie. So that will, those are protective of your teeth. They help to buffer the acids and then the polyphenols and the fiber inside the fruit actually help to inhibit tooth decay overall. And also the adjustments in the microbiome are important. The other thing I would do is I would make sure that you have like, instead of just having fruit juice or that regularly like have that with a meal so i know perhaps not perfect with the uh, the smoothie should probably cause less issues overall with the addition of those things but i would try to avoid like sipping any of the juices throughout the day maybe just have a meal when you go out so bring a smoothie with you maybe you can throw some whey protein in there because the protein specifically um i think we talked about in that podcast there's the hypothalamic pituitary parotid axis and so the protein actually stimulates that release of the so or induces the prod again to, to stimulate that saliva release um which helps to remineralize the teeth so i would do that the other thing that i think could be really helpful that i've been doing lately is um i have a 
like a xylitol based gum from a company called Spry. And it's, I like the cinnamon one. That's the one I use. Um, so I chew that after meals. The, there's multifold benefits to it. So the xylitol helps to inhibit biofilm formation on the teeth from streptococcus mutans. And then the uh, chewing helps to stimulate the parasympathetic uh, nervous system to enhance digestion and whatnot. So those would be the general strategies that I would use. And again, so overall to protect your teeth. I was going to recap, but it's already short. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And just two kind of additions I'll, I'll make to your suggestions. One, when it comes to the smoothie or fruit in general, it's really important that it's ripe. So unripe fruit, for example, like orange juice that's uh, sour is going, probably going to be worse for your teeth than like not having anything. Whereas like a ripe, good quality fruit can, uh, you know, be the opposite. As you're saying, the, the polyphenols, the fibers and on from there can be really helpful. So it's important that it's ripe. And sometimes when you're doing, like when you're just getting the fruit from, you know, the freezer, it's not always ripe. So you just want to make sure you're getting good quality, getting it organic. Normally it's better quality, freezing it yourself, uh, getting the fruit pulp, whatever it is, but make sure that it's good quality when you're doing that. And yeah, the xylitol gum could be helpful. I don't remember, you mentioned the spry. I know when I was looking at it in the past, I, I remember there being something in the spry gum that I didn't like, some ingredient. So I went with either pure, P-U-R, they have gum and they they also have like an off uh, another like uh, type of gum within that brand which i think is called five or something it's like it's it's like three four five six something like that it has to do with however many ingredients are in there i don't remember if it's i think five was like a different commercial one but yeah uh, i'll see if i can find it and maybe i'll put it in the notes yeah the other thing i want to add too is uh, he mentioned olive oil he was having olive oil so with his with the smoothie a smoothie option for him that he could do if he tolerates whey protein, he or if it's not cow whey protein, you could try a goat whey from Mount Capra. But you could do the goat whey, the frozen fruit, the juice, and then in order to have some fats in there, because you mentioned the olive oil, you can put in some cream if you tolerate cream well. And it's actually like strawberry, banana, cream, and whey is actually a really tasty smoothie. Or you can do something with like whey, coconut water, macadamia nuts. Uh, I know I said maple syrup's not ideal, but it makes it a little better. And then some cinnamon. Yep. Yep, all good options. And of course, it might be tough if someone's like out partying or something to get a uh, to get a meal in. But if they're bringing drinks and, and whatever, then a smoothie would work. And I found it. It's it's called three and it's by it's still by pure that gum. So, yeah, five, I think, is like a can <laughs> like a typical like bad gum. But yeah, it's called three. They used to have those crazy commercials. They were insane. <laughs> the five gum, the five gum commercials. Yeah, they were like these like these like goth like dark commercials but like it was about sensory aspects of the gum okay so i think like, i remember that yeah and if by the way with the maple syrup um with the maple syrup and uh cinnamon and macadamia nut and uh coconut water and whey protein you probably can put some coffee in there and throw a little rum in there and it probably tastes good if you're going out <laughs> although <laughs> alcohol is not advised but <laughs> you never know <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I remember what I was going to say before with the whole, it's tough to be getting a meal in. You were still saying like it can be helpful, even if you're not getting a meal, to just condense the amount of time that you're having the juice or smoothie or whatever to a short window as opposed to sipping it throughout the night, which is, I think, an important point. Whether you're having the juice or the smoothie, just have it at one point, you know, a few hours in or something and then rinse after. And that way you're not constantly uh, exposing your teeth and they have time to remineralize and, you know, interact with the saliva and all that. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Okay. 
All right. Along the calcium lines, maybe along the teeth lines, I'm not sure if all these questions were from the same episode, but Manchis777 asks, what about orange juice with added calcium as a dairy alternative? And so I would, you know, we talked about coral calcium being a good option here. I would probably lean toward just adding coral calcium as needed as opposed to trying to get it all from an orange juice with added calcium due to quality issues, being able to control the dose better and things like that. The, uh, or the calcium in orange juice is usually, I think, uh, calcium phosphate. So mm-hmm. when, you're, when, you, when you're working with calcium or you're trying to use calcium, the goal is to balance phosphate. So if you're taking in an extra phosphate with the calcium, like with the calcium phosphate, like it's almost a bit counterproductive. Um, And the calcium carbonate, which is what you see inside uh, coral calcium and whatnot, or eggshell calcium is doesn't have that extra phosphorus. So I would buy your own juice and then I would add the coral calcium and then you could put magnesium and depending on your diet, maybe a little bit of zinc in there. And you could have that on a regular basis or you could mix the juices, whatever the deal is. Um, and then though the coral, ca- the calcium carbonate can, depending on how, what juice you're using, like grape juice isn't as acidic as orange juice, but it can, um, it can like create like a carbonation effect, which I like a lot. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, the uh, uh, I do think some of them will use calcium citrate as well, but again, that's not ideal either. We've talked about the problems with the citrate part there where they're getting the citric acid from, uh, from mold oftentimes so yeah i would just choose i would just basically make it yourself as opposed to choosing that option yep agreed all right next question from gratitude what tests would show if the extra weight is a metabolic issue rather than just glycogen slash water storage then what to do to correct the metabolic issue thank you so this must have been an episode we were we were discussing maybe water weight being gained after low carb or just uh, weight loss in general or something like that. But part of the reason why I wanted to bring up this question is because we've pointed to increases in water and glycogen being something that can account for some weight gain when you're coming from a low calorie or low carb diet, you know, keto, carnivore, all those things. But I want to be clear that that's only going to be a few pounds, maybe up to about five pounds or so, depending on your body size. This is not something that's accounting for 10, 15, 20, 25 pounds of weight. That's not glycogen. That's not water. It can be swelling. I mean, it could be water, but it's not water in the muscles. It could be swelling and inflammation. It could be body fat. It could be food weight and other things too. But at that point, you're probably gaining a decent amount of body fat. And so I wouldn't want to just blame that all on glycogen or water storage. One of the ways you can tell is, I mean, if it's done slowly, it's hard to tell, right? If this is something that's accumulating over several days, it might be hard to tell, but Normally, the glycogen and water weight is something that will come on quickly. And so if you're gaining a couple pounds overnight, two, three, four, five pounds in in a couple of days, that's not body fat. That's most likely to be water weight, food weight, maybe some glycogen storage as well. So the speed with which it's coming on will probably be the best indicator if you're not like doing some body fat testing or you can't tell based on just like looking at your at your body. So that's going to be from my from my view, the, the clearest indicator. But if you're continuing to gain, especially at a slower or steadier rate, uh, then I would be considering some metabolic factors. And as far as, as far as what to do to correct that metabolic issue, it depends on what the metabolic issue is. You know, this is something I would go back to the weight loss series, which was episode, started with episode 10. And then, so it was 10, 11, 12. And then we did another episode on weight loss. I think it was like somewhere 37, 38 about the physiology of fat loss. 
I'll include all those in the show notes, but there's a lot of factors that can cause weight loss. If it was as simple as just here's the metabolic, like here's how you fix the metabolic issue, then it would be really easy and simple. And, you know, there wouldn't be much to discuss, but everything from PUFA to gut issues, nutrient deficiencies, uh, other aspects of lifestyle, poor sleep, excess stress, not enough movement and on from there. I mean, there's, you know, also just, ex- you know, uh, hypothyroidism over time is severely depressed metabolism, which especially can happen if you're coming from a hypocaloric diet or or a hypocarbohydrate diet. So yeah, a lot of things to consider there. I would, I would look back at those weight loss episodes as far as correcting the metabolic issue. Yeah. Um, I don't think so. There is tests you can do to see. So you can do like a hydrostatic weighing or um, any of those types of body fat percentage or uh, body composition tests. And then they have like the bioelectrical impedance stuff. But I don't think that that's yeah. like... You'd have to do it like before and after. Yeah, and you'd have to do it with a lab. It's not like... They have the scales that you do at, that you can do at home. I don't know how accurate those are compared to like mm-hmm. actually going to the lab. And there's one of the things called a bod pod, which we talked about that we had done. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think that those... I don't think it's necessary to go that route, kind of as you were implying, Jay. It's like you get, if you're gaining like, a, like five pounds, five, ten pounds in the beginning... You know, that that's a, that's kind of normal over over a period of time, but if especially coming from like very low carb and being the the way you describe it in like the bodybuilding sphere is like being flat, so your muscles are flat, they're kind of lower in glycogen. Um, but after that, if you're still gaining, then I don't think you need to have a test to determine that that's not necessarily glycogen and water weight. You're probably gaining body fat, um, and then I would in that situation I would start to look at what's going on with your diet. Um, because I don't think like coming out the gate of low carb and keto and carnivore, if you're going to start eating fruit and like fruit smoothies and, uh, juice and things like that, there that you should be putting on like tons and tons of body weight, unless you have like something more specific going on. Um, what that could be is dependent upon the individual, but if you're going to come out the gate and you're starting to incorporate heavy amounts of dairy and ice cream and um, like sugared milk and all that type of stuff and you're gaining weight, then I think that like it's most likely diet related. And it's not that those foods are bad for you per se. It's just that they have a tendency to put weight on people, especially coming out of that low carb carnivore keto period. Um, and that was something that I noticed and that's something that I see with like quite a few different people like a lot of clients that I work with. Um, so I would really start to take a look at your diet. I There's this perspective in the sphere that I'm not a huge fan of where it's like this all in, like you just need to keep eating and your metabolic rate will eventually catch up and then you'll start to lose weight. I have never seen that be the case in the sense that you just like, if you're gaining weight and you just keep eating and keep eating more and keep eating more and then the weight just all of a sudden starts to come off. Most times people that I work with that follow that approach will gain the weight, keep gaining the weight, and then at the back end be like, why am I gaining weight? I sh- my metabolism should be increasing. Um, it's no, you need to adjust the foods that you're eating. It's like it, your metabolism doesn't endlessly increase um, for the amount of food that you're eating. Now, to be fair, there is nuance here where if you're coming out of some of those periods or you're severely underweight and whatnot, there may be a period of time where you overshoot with weight and you have you have to eat in excess of calories and then things can resettle. But I would say that that's not necessarily the the rule. I think that's the exception. Um, 
So I would be very careful with those situations and I would start to adjust and look at your diet and what you have going on. Um, Overall, I don't think there's an, there's like an endless capability to keep eating and your metabolism just increases and then you're super skinny or you start to lose that body fat. So I think I'd be careful with those perspectives because they can be a bit dangerous and I've seen it dangerous from a weight perspective. Then I've seen that with quite a few clients. Yeah. And I would say that's especially true for the population that's already not lean coming in. So if you were already doing all your dieting and you're not lean and then you go into a refeeding and then you just expect that the weight's going to probably come down after it goes up for a little while, normally I would agree. I don't see that being the case. And you have to look at, or it's best to, you know, then look at what kind of foods are you eating? What other problems are there? What kind of, you know, what kind of holes are there to fill? Where might we be taking some missteps? Uh, Normally I would say you don't want to be like, 10 to 15 pounds being gained is is pretty normal, maybe even 10 to 20, depending on where you're coming from and, and what it's like. And so I wouldn't necessarily look at that as a problem if it's if you're feeling better and having a ton of benefits up to that point. But, you know, and, and like, you know, 10 to 15 if you're slightly smaller body size and maybe a little bit more if you're if you're larger. But uh, yeah, normally it is a situation where other things need to be addressed in order to see the weight loss. And reason why I'm I'm saying it that way is because for us, for example, who are people who are coming into pro-metabolic with issues, but with uh but being generally lean and pretty muscular, we gained weight initially. We basically had a massive refeeding period and then, you know, gained some weight. We did make some adjustments, but then the weight came down and it wasn't because we were just eating less. Like we were still eating a lot when our weight was coming down and we were leaning out. And there was intricacies there. We did make some shifts as far as the foods that were coming in. Initially, we were much higher on the starch because we were very afraid of fructose, you know, understandably so, coming from the, the low carb space, as many people are. And so that was part of it as well, and, and some gut issues and things. But I would say for the large part, I think for us, it was one of those things where it was largely kind of a refeeding and recalibrating, and then it, you know, and our weight jumped up 20, 25 pounds or so and then came back down. Uh, but it was necessary. It was, I think it would, the weight gain for us was necessary because when we were doing the low right. carb and fasting and all that stuff, our body fat percentages had been under 10% for years doing that stuff. Under 8%. Yeah. yeah which was we like six, 7%. Yeah. yeah. When we had the veins all up on my, on, I remember like just having veins all up on my belly and it's being like extremely lean and not feeling good <laughs> not yeah. feeling good. So like that 20 yeah. pounds of weight gain or more that we had put on was like needed. Now, definitely overshot because the the cal- calories, like I remember it was like 30 pounds in like two months. Yeah, from that low when, yeah, from the point where you were seeing abs on your veins, I think it was up, what, 45 pounds from there or 40 pounds? Like that, yeah, that yeah. was a low for sure. <laughs> but it was too thin at that point. And I was 6'2", yes, yes. 170 pounds versus... Mm-hmm. Moving up to being, you know, 6'2", 220 pounds. 220 was too high, but Mm -hmm. 200, 190 was like adequate. So there was an overshoot. Mm -hmm. But I was also, both of us were were almost at that level. We were pounding, you know, ridiculous numbers of calories in that refeeding phase. After, and Mm -hmm. we, it's not that we were low calorie eating before. It's that we were exercising and then low carb eating, which was a bad combination. (laughs) Especially with the like how much exercise with the powerlifting and bodybuilding and gymnastics training all together and then trying to do sprints and yoga and whatever else. It was like an absurd amount of activity. Yeah, it was. Yeah, we we were biking everywhere. Like we didn't have cars and we lived off campus. 
So we were biking to all of our classes, and when we biked, we biked. It wasn't like a yeah. casual bike. Like we were high intensity biking. <laughs> yeah, normally because we were pretty late for our classes, uh, or because we forgot plantains in the oven and had to bike back really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder who did uh, that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but this actually ties directly into another question that I wasn't going to get to next, but we might as well. It's from Ryan Huber, who said. Or Huber, and he said, when you said you were struggling to get in enough calories, eating five to six thousand calories per day, were you playing a sport at the time with a very active lifestyle? Five to six thousand seems to be on the very high end, uh, even by high level athlete standards. Also, just curious as to how many calories you eat comparatively now versus then. Thank you for the episode; very insightful. And yeah, so at this time when we were doing when we were eating that five to six thousand calories, a our body weight we were between two hundred to twenty five. You know, kind of in that range we were, that was kind of we were eating that much on the way up to about 220 ish and then also back on the way down to you know hover i think i ended up landing around 205 uh, i don't remember where you landed i was like, about the same the down i was about okay. 200 when i when i stopped eating eight plantains a day <laughs> <laughs> well i just mean more of like uh when my like i don't i don't think i was eating any less when i came down to 205 that was just where i was uh, lean, like as lean as I would have wanted to be, like you know, it's pretty lean at that point. You know, we had gained a good amount of muscle as well during our, our refeed and powerlifting and all that. But uh, yeah, I mean, we were still eating. So I remember when I was at that 205 mark, and we've talked about this before. You know, when talking about our our uh, health journeys, but I remember at that point, and I think this is what Ryan was referring to here, is that I know for me, I had to be so on top of my of getting food in, or else I, it would be a disaster. Like I would have to prep like 16 plus ounces of orange juice with collagen and sugar and the same amount of milk with collagen and sugar the night before so that I could wake up and eat it right away because I was starving when I would wake up. And if I didn't get that food in soon enough, I wouldn't digest it soon enough to be able to have the next meal, you know, however much later uh, where I needed to get that in while I was making breakfast and I had to have my breakfast on time or else I wouldn't be able to eat enough. And then I would have to overeat later and I wouldn't feel as good and and kind of on from there. And we had super high needs and part of it was because we were large body size Part of it was because we were biking everywhere. We were also lifting at the time. And uh, also, I mean, we were like 21 at, at this time. So I, th- I think those kinds of things. And, and we were doing everything else, right? We were, we were in the sun a lot. We were generally active. I was also doing Muay Thai at this time. Uh, as you mentioned, we were doing yoga around this time as well. Like we were just mixing in a lot of activity and we were getting good sleep. You know, we were like sleeping throughout the night, like all these things that were keeping our metabolism pretty high. Also, the other thing I'd mention here is that I think a lot of high-level athletes are or quote-unquote should be eating that much. When we look back at something like the Minnesota Starvation Experiment and see that people who are weighing on average 150 to 160 pounds in their 20s, and like they were maintaining their weight at 3,300 calories a day. So if you have an athlete who's 180, 190, 200 plus pounds and is way more active, uh, and like then they should be eating considerably more than that 3,300. So I think the vast majority of people, athletes and non-athletes, are under eating by t- like compared to what they could be. And I think it's a huge problem and it's part of the reason why you see so many negative health effects in a lot of those high-level athletes and deterioration and things. So. Yeah. I mean, I feel like during that time, I was, at least specifically for me, I was doing the powerlifting like five or six days a week with bodybuilding training as accessory exercises. And then you're doing Muay Thai, but I was doing jujitsu and I was like going to the jujitsu gym. Um, In college? Yeah. 
I was like walking from our house, the first house in our sophomore year and going to doing uh, BJJ. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking like junior, senior year, even, even in junior, senior year though, I was even when I, so I got, I was doing the, the bodybuilding stuff, but then I was also doing hand Mm -hmm. balancing. So it was like bodybuilding. So it was like two a day trainings almost. And then we were also, again, we were biking. So it was like, we were doing a couple miles a day minimum on the bike, going back and forth to campus um and then going to whole foods it was like a few miles each way i think and we would do that sometimes multiple times go to the grocery store or wherever else yeah yeah so there was like a, an exorbitant amount of activity and then coming from that restricted background i remember like the when we first started having carbs we like binged for a couple months um mm-hmm. and the other thing for me is i couldn't like the carbs again we were afraid of fructose and i was trying to do plantains and like i couldn't digest starches extremely well but i was slamming six to eight so I don't know how well it was like, like I, my digestion wasn't perfect at that time either. Um, but I think that, I think that at that larger size, so comparatively right now, I'm at 205 pounds. My body fat is probably around 16%. Um, so I'm not like as lean as I was just a couple months ago, but I kind of feel better overall at this weight. Um, and I'm still maintaining in the 3000, like 3,500 calories a day. Um, that's where I'm currently maintaining my weight. If I start to drop, I'll dip a little bit in weight and whatnot. So there's still a, like, even at my current size, I still think that there's a requirement for a decent amount of calories. Um, the other thing is I'm still exercising on a regular basis. So I still exercise like almost six days a week. Um, but again, the exercise is different. It's just straight bodybuilding stuff. It's not super taxing. There's a decent amount of rest. Um, and I'm used to it. I've been doing it for, I've been lifting for years, so I don't have a problem with the amount of volume that I'm doing. And I also know how to adjust it based on what I'm feeling and what I have going on. So I do think that, and if you run calorie calculators with the amount of activity that I'm currently doing, and then my current body size, that is actually where I would land is about that in that 3000 to 4,000 calorie range based on my activity level. So that is something to keep in mind. And then also, we were when we were bodybuilding or powerlifting in college and whatnot, we were trying to gain weight during that period um, from where we were. So keep in mind, we were trying to eat in a surplus as well. It wasn't just like we're eating 4,000, 5,000 calories to like main, stay at our same weight. It was we were eating 4,000, 5,000 calories to come out of being super restrictive while still having a high energy level and trying to put on more lean body mass overall. So now I wouldn't necessarily recommend that somebody goes about it the same way that we did, or at least that I did with all the plantains and whatnot, because that actually led to gut issues for me. Now I would adjust how I would do that after going through that process Um, and like choose foods that specifically work for your system and figure those out systematically and then increase calories in a slow concerted fashion but at that point, it was just like we had been restricted for so long. That it was like anything goes like I'm just hungry. I need to eat. I'm doing all this stuff. And like I, I just like human garbage, garbage can just like slamming food in. Now, the food that we were eating was good. It wasn't like we were going out and getting um, like donuts and whatever else, like just straight junk food and chips. It was more like whole foods that we were preparing, which also makes it a little bit harder because like plantains and yams are pretty filling. <laughs> Um, and then you can get like, like a lot of bloating and gas if you eat a ton of those fibers. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, so yeah, I'm still, I guess to answer the question, I'm still at a high caloric intake can based on, you know, what, 
from what normal people would consider. Like they would say 3,000 to 4,000 calories is high. Based on my body size and my activity level, it actually is completely within normal limits. Um, and then that time frame had multiple factors going on that led to the higher caloric intake. So I think that the, and there were some issues with, like I was definitely closer to 20% body fat at 4,000 to 5,000 calories. I'm not good, like I wasn't necessarily lean. So that is something to keep in mind. So I know it's been a, like, obviously it's been a while since that time we're talking seven years ago or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, so I know it was different for me. I don't know if you like, so I know for me, when we gained that weight, we were eating that much, but it was really high starch. For me, I remember that we switched the foods from, you know, to way lower amounts of starch, you know, instead of getting 600 to 800 calories, uh, grams of carbs a day from starch, we, you know, we got a lot more from sugars, dried fruits, things like that, and fresh fruits and juices, uh, as opposed to just starches. I think I know for me, at least I still had some starches coming in that was the point when i leaned out but i was still eating the same amount i was still having uh milk as well and a lot of milk and i know i leaned out at that time still eating that much because i remember you know certain instances being at that leaner limit or like leaner body uh mass or body fat body composition and neat like really struggling to get enough food in and like still really pounding it so i don't know if that was i don't know if if our trajectories just didn't line up there or if you were actually eating less when you came down and were leaner. But for me, I remember just changing the foods really made a huge difference. Plus getting out of the refeeding stage, which for me wasn't that we were eating even more before, but rather just that of like when your body is in a hypometabolic state from, from hypocaloric and low carb eating, then bringing a ton of food and led to the weight gain, but then kind of bounced out from that standpoint as well. So I know for me, I was still eating that much and leaned out. But I don't know if that was different for you. So it, th- that was kind of one thing. I have a couple other things to mention, but maybe I don't know if you want to. Uh, I didn't lean out until I stopped doing dairy. but I, So I still had a high right. caloric intake. But when I was doing dairy, like I didn't, my body didn't handle it well at all. I think you handled right. oh, dairy yeah. much better than I did. So when I stopped dairy, I like immediately leaned out, even though my caloric intake stayed the same. And I just switched to, mm-hmm. to like muscle meats and so seafood and beef, things like that. Yeah, so you were still eating high calorie, like higher than you are now, and you and you were leaning out. Yes, yeah, as, as soon as the the dairy thing was crazy, because as soon as I stopped drinking mm-hmm. cow's milk and eating cheese and things like that, within like within like a month, I just straight lost twenty pounds. Like just like fell off. I would feel like I pissed it all out, and that was like a very rapid weight loss. But I didn't like I was now. I still like had a large amount of muscle mass. So I just like felt less, I guess, puffy is the, is the easiest way to describe it. And then I eventually tried dairy again, but as goat milk and goat milk didn't make me gain as much body weight. And again, I was still eating a large amount of calories. I was still over 3000 calories easily. Um, and I, but I also got extremely strong on goat milk. So I remember being in the gym and like using hammer strength machines, like the, the press, like a hammer strength press, if anyone's familiar with that. And I was like putting up four plates, no problem. And then, so like the the milk made me feel strong, but again, I still like wasn't lean. Like I got less lean doing that. And then when I just hopped off dairy again, I was, I was, I leaned out again. So for me, staying off dairy keeps me lean, even with the higher caloric intake. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, And then just to mention a couple other things, I know you were talking about the calorie calculator. I know for me at, and for a lot of clients I see as well, 
I don't know. I take a lot more issue with using those calorie calculators. I feel like they, like sometimes they're going to be right, you know, broken clocks, right? Twice. What is it? Twice a day. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've found, I've seen clients who are gaining weight, eating way less than the calorie calculator says. And I've seen clients who are losing or maintaining weight, eating way more than the calorie calculator says. And I just think it's fine for getting estimates, but I think there are so many other factors going in that I, I don't, I think it's just way oversimplified. And so I don't like, I don't like just pointing to that as the, as something that uh, that can actually account for all the variables and should give you an accurate indication. And I know that, especially at this time, and I can't say now, and I'll get to this in a second, but I don't know what my current calorie in, uh, intake is. Um, but I know it many times in the past for me, I was eating considerably more than the calorie calculator would like said that I should have been able to. Yeah, I mean... The calorie count, are you talking about it with like activity included, like the activity multiplier? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've like it. I think it's a helpful baseline for a lot of people to start out for like, especially if you have, you take somebody straight off the bat, they don't even know what they're doing. And then you use like a, the catch McArdle formula is the one I use, which determines Mm -hmm. it based on lean body mass. Cause some of the calorie calculator formulas are crap. Um, but I do like the catch McArdle one for baseline to start. I think that it is helpful to be like, this is a ballpark of where we're trying to be at or where you should, should be at. And then it gives you like, you can, then you can kind of determine from there with somebody because you can see, okay, you're eating less and you're still gaining weight. So you definitely have some stuff going on or you're able to eat more and, and you're like losing weight. And that depends, you know, again, there are, i definitely have those situations as well. When I'm first starting with somebody, I like to use that because I have some people come to me at like 1200 calories a day and I'm just like, you know, large, much larger body sizes. I'm just like, this is, this is crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's helpful as like a tool or as like a reference point, right? Where someone's eating so much less and you look at that and you're like, okay, there's probably a a bit of a description, like there's a reason for this sort of discrepancy. So I think it's really helpful for that. Normally I'm, I'm using what somebody's currently maintaining their weight at as like the, as like an actual uh, place to work from as opposed to what the the equation says and i know you're saying this too right if someone's coming in on 1200 calories a day and the the calorie calculator says they should be able to eat 2000 to maintain your weight their weight you're not just putting them on 2000 calories you're, no, you're adjusting other factors so they can hopefully get to that yeah. point right right so it's helpful as a reference value uh but i do think the fact that we're seeing such discrepancies points out how limited it is and i'll even the the kind of more accurate measures like i've had clients who use the fitbits and things where it measures their you know, they know their body fat, they know their body weight, and it's measuring all their activity and estimating their calorie expenditure and everything. And, you know, they're, they're like I've seen, there's, there's a particular client I'm thinking of, but I've seen the same pattern with a lot where they're maintaining the weight on at least like an average of a thousand calories less per day than the Fitbit says. And so I, I think there's yeah some real limitations there. And that's really helpful information because this person was very hypothyroid. And it was a good indication that, hey, it's not your, your problem here isn't that you're eating too little. There's other issues we need to resolve. But uh, yeah, so yeah, I think it's a helpful tool. Just want to be careful as far as using that as like in a number that we should then eat just based on whatever it says. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have if I have a client who's eating more and losing weight than the calorie calculator, I don't then move them to that value. Or if I have a client who's eating less and is gaining weight, I don't then move them to that value. I do like right. to hit. I what's more important to me than than calories 
is looking at macro intakes. So I do use the macro targets, but again, I adjust those based, like you have to see where the person's at and you have to see what the targets are. And then you have to see what you have to do to kind of hit those depending on, you know, it, they give you, they give you references. You have a target to work with instead of just shooting blankly in the air. So I, that's what, that's what they're helpful for. Um, they're not like, mm-hmm. they're not straight jackets or set in stone rules. And I think that that's confusing for a lot of people. And, you know, and when I work with somebody, it's the first thing that I kind of talk about with them when I go through those values, but it's just, it gives you an empirical set of numbers that you can say, okay, we're going to like, we have some point of reference and that's, that's the most important piece for those. And again, like if you have somebody coming from low carb and you, the other thing is you're looking at their chronometer, you're looking at what they're doing on a regular basis. And then you're like taking all of that into account. So there's multiple factors to put into play there. Um, but I, again, I think they're important for point of reference and they help you make adjustments and you, they also help mm-hmm. you gauge progress. Cause you have somebody coming in at 1200, you changed your most times what I see. And I even have clients like this right now, they're coming in at 1500 calories and they're, they're gaining weight. And then we change their food sources. We change up macro composition. We change up how they're structuring the meals, et cetera. And then they're getting hungrier, eating more and still maintaining or possibly losing weight depending on what they have. Mm-hmm going on and it's just by changing up those sources so that's a like that's kind of what i want to see so that will that helps me gauge a progress with somebody it's like oh i'm eating 1800 calories now or 2000 calories now before i could only get in 1200 and now i'm feeling better and i'm hungrier and i'm still maintaining my weight despite the increase in caloric intake and that's a that's definitely a good sign and and then you could see like other things to look at are like okay your body temperature increased like i have clients from just food intake, their body temperature increases a degree over time. Now, it's not like next week, but it's over a couple months of working together. It's like, oh, my waking temperatures, oh, now they're like in the 97s. When we started out, it was like 95, 96. And so you can see those changes as well, which are which are quite important. So you track a whole bunch of different metrics to see how people are with symptoms as well. And some of the calories and macros can be important things to look at. And having reference points is helpful, like the reference points with thyroid, like the 97.8 to 98.2 waking temp. It's not that every person I need to work with needs to be in that range. And if not, if they're not in that specific range, when we start, they're right on thyroid. No, it's more like, are we getting close to that? Are you 97.7 in the morning? I don't think, and your thyroid labs and all that look good. You're probably not hypothyroid or severely hypothyroid or anything like that. So there's, again, the references are helpful for guidelines, but they're not set in stone. It's not, it's not a straight jacket. You have to be there or else you're not healthy, whatever the deal is. Right. And I like the reference point of a 97.8 to 98-ish waking temp a lot more than the calorie calculator where my issue with the calorie calculators is honestly, I'd prefer a goal of trying to get above them while maintaining or losing weight as opposed to a goal of hitting them. And so that's, I think they under account for the fact or the possibility of adjusting where your metabolic rate is at, which actually ties into one of the next questions we'll get to. And uh, yeah, it, it, and so I'd like to see metabolism that is higher than the average whatever that they're using when they're coming up with these with this formula. So uh, yeah, I think it's a helpful reference point with with that context in mind. And yeah, 100%, I agree, right? As far as the trajectory, the goal, you know, being able to eat more while losing weight, increasing body temperature, sleep improving, gut improving, all those things. I mean, that is what we're like, that is uh, the exact trajectory that we're, we're working to create. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, just in reference to the last part of the question here, as far as 
how many calories we currently eat, comparatively how active we are and all that. I have no idea what my intake is at the moment, so I cannot answer that question, but uh, maybe I'll do that in the future and then, yeah. then we'll do this again. I only know mine because I make a day in chronometer um, and I basically just run that day perpetually within a, like adjusting, like switching out things here. Like instead of four ounces of beef for that meal, I'll have like a cup, like five ounces of shrimp or something like that. So I know my, and then I have like similar amounts of fat for each meal. So I know my stuff within mm-hmm. a, a decent range. And then I also have to make my days when I work in the hospital. So I had to do that to figure out how, what can I do to eat enough and get all my stuff in with like the easiest amount of prep and minimal amount of time for consumption. So I run those when I'm in the hospital and then my days off, I run like the same days on a regular basis. And so I don't have a lot of variety <laughs> in terms of days. So I know what I'm doing on a regular basis and just that's my personality overall. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, the biggest, fa- the biggest like uh, factor variable here is travel. So my food availability changes considerably based on where we are and uh, we're traveling a lot. And so it's, yeah, it's, yeah varying way more than it did when i was in the states yeah it's super easy to have it consistent in the states because you can go buy your 93 7 ground beef <laughs> and have everything like like it's all so streamlined the whole food processing piece versus in other areas it's like you go to the butcher and it's like is this cut of meat 93 7 <laughs> so it's like yeah yeah no it is <laughs> definitely not asking them that <laughs> they would have no idea yeah um yeah, let alone trying to do all, all of it in Spanish and adds another <laughs> layer. It's hard enough to just get the cut of meat that I would like to get because uh, not only is it, of course, different in Spanish versus English, but they'll also call different cuts different things in all these different countries and they cut the meat differently. Like there are certain cuts you don't get in some countries versus others. And uh, one thing too, just while we're on the subject is here in Mexico, they really like to cut everything super thin. So when we get short ribs or, or um, beef shanks uh, or steaks whatever it is that we're getting and sometimes i'll forget like just just because i'm not so used you know you just forget sometimes but they cut it super paper thin and it's just terrible like they're just really missing out by eating their stuff that way and they you know they do it because like with the short ribs they they grill them like they don't slow cook them they grill them and they're super tough it's really terrible i don't know why they do it that way but i've ordered the ribs like at restaurants and things and it's just the worst and then you know you get it from a butcher and they cut it super thin and you have to tell them like no can you make it like super thick uh what do you mean super thin like there's no meat on it it's just straight bone so with the short ribs you know like in the states when you get them they're cut like in individual ribs what they'll i don't know if you've seen it where they cut it the other way like the long way instead of the short way so instead of cutting each rib individually if you took the whole rack and cut it in slices okay that's that's how they do it here, and they cut it in really thin slices so that they can grill it because they aren't slow cooking it. What about the bones? They cook it with the bone. So like they're just, just they're just like just slicing the, they're slicing it long ways with the, like slicing through the bone or they're. Yes. That is it. Yeah, what? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that is like the most yeah, difficult way, to, do way to cut the meat is to slice <laughs> through the bone. You literally just cut it at the at the at the joint sections where it's just pure meat. Yeah, you can actually get it cut this way in the states. I think they call it flanken style. Um, Ugh. And then they grill it, and then they grill it. They don't. I thought it's like yeah, they'll, they'll like pan fry. It. There's certain meats that you just like you don't do that because they're so like I wouldn't buy a whole bunch of chuck 
and like a like a big piece like a beef chuck and then grill beef chuck like you'd either grind it up or slice it up and then make a stew out of it because it's so tough it's like eating rubber yeah <laughs> it is yeah i don't know how it happened here like i i don't know because they have you know traditional dishes and cooking and everything as well and so i don't know how that started you know and the steaks too if you just get this typical steaks it was the same in costa rica and i think in uh it goes the same in Ecuador as well. They don't do like a thick ribeye or New York or something. Like if you're just getting this typical steak, it's a super, super thin, really tough, like not good cut of meat. Is it like the Palomilla uh, stuff? Like where they pound the meat? That's It must be. When I was in Spain, that's what they had a lot is like the super thin steaks and they pounded them so that they were like, because yeah. the meat is tough and then they pound them to kind of break the fibers. But like just get a better cut of meat and cook the other stuff like a different way or make it ground meat and like a, a good quality chuck that's cooked into ground meat is pretty good. The ground meat is usually yeah. crappy when they add a whole bunch of collagenous pieces to it like joints and they just throw the garbage, not garbage, but it's like the, the lesser quality cuts that are like just a lot of connective tissue. They throw that in there. But if you get a like nice chuck and you grind it, it's into ground meat. It's good. I don't know why they you would. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. But I, at least for me, I'm because I eat a lot of meat and like a beef connoisseur. So <laughs> there's like certain things that you just don't do. Like, for example, I went to a restaurant and they had picanha and they cut, they took all the fat off the picanha. So it's just like a lean mm -hmm. picanha. I was like, you didn't cook the fat on the picanha. And then you could, once you do that, if you don't want the fat, then you slice it off. Like things like that are just like, it's blasphemy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and again, maybe I'm like misunderstanding things. So if somebody is is either from Mexico or knows more about Mexican culture here and I'm butchering it, you know, like take like I'm a gringo here. It's it's fine. <laughs> like I, I'll I'll take that that I'll acknowledge that possibility. But my interpretation is, yeah, that like when it comes to things like the short ribs or again, like the the beef shanks, like I don't know what the reasoning is there. But again, same thing, super, super thin uh, unless you ask for it thick and then slow cook it. But yeah, they, they don't seem to be slow cooking those things that really need to be slow cooked to be tender. And that's like boiling scallops. That's like eating boiled scallops. Right. <laughs> it's disgusting. It's like eating hockey pucks. You gotta like, yeah. things have to be prepared the right way for different cuts of meat and whatnot. And there's, there's like scientific yeah. basis for this based on like denaturing of the proteins in different ways and breaking them down, etc. Like scallops are way better fried in a pan and to a certain like toughness you wouldn't boil mm -hmm. them same thing with like the meat less cooked yeah like you want them to yeah. be soft and so when you bite through them it's like buttery but if you like boil a whole bunch of little bay scallops <laughs> it's disgusting it's like what am i eating yeah 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 uh all right <laughs> <laughs> it's like first world problems i guess <laughs> yeah definitely but i mean but also i mean it makes like on, on, in some ways, yes, but also if you want to be getting the gelatinous cuts, which make a difference for health and are also cheaper and, and they're super inexpensive in, in the places that we traveled, but it's they're inedible if you're. Yeah, if you don't do it the right way. Yeah, you yeah. have to break it down with the water with the slow cooking process mm -hmm. or like a slow cooking process, like with with a, mm -hmm. you know, like if you have like slow charbroiled ribs like that have been done for a long period of time in the smoker or something like like they're not ideal in the smoker but they're delicious versus like you just have these tough beef ribs that you just like you just fried up in the pan and you're trying to eat it and you're just like <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. It reminds me when I was first learning to cook these things. And again, I will say like, this has been the same Costa Rica and Mexico. I think Ecuador too, with the short ribs and like the really thin steaks and things. But it reminds me when I was first learning to slow cook things back when we were in living in, it was junior year, uh, no senior year. And, uh, I remember I would get like a roast and we had never done this before. And I, I think you were still just sticking with the ground beef. And I was trying to do these roasts in the slow cooker and I would cook it for a few hours. I just didn't know what I was doing. And then it would be really tough. And so I think that I overcooked it. And so I'd be cooking it less and less and less. <laughs> and, you know, I would try it because I would try it differently every time. So eventually I was cooking it for like an hour or something on the slow cooker when it needs to be like eight to 12, you know, like normally longer is way more tender. And so it kept going down until it was like an hour and it would still be like cooked. You know, the outside would still be brown. The inside was still like, you know, the pink red. And I was like, it's cooked, but it's still so tough. And I don't know how I like why it took so long to figure it out, but eventually I figured it out that it needs to be cooked way longer. And it, because you're the other thing too is it's with a steak or something, if it's cooked after a few minutes, you don't want to keep cooking it because you'll overcook it, but it doesn't happen with the slow cooked meats. They, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they get really tender. Yeah. Point of the story <laughs> make sure you're cooking the right cuts of meats the right way, or else they'll be absolutely inedible. <laughs> Yeah. yeah yeah definitely and they're really easy too with that in mind like it's not hard to make these things like really good fall off the bow and all that you just do it in a slow cooker for a long time or here we don't you know with our travels we don't have slow cookers again just talking about like why it's really hard to estimate things is we're just sometimes we don't know how much we're getting you know you, you ask for a few kilograms and it's not exact and then uh yeah we're just throwing it all in a big pot and we have to cook it on the stove uh, yeah you know for the, the more traditional way. a pro tip on Most ground likely. meat if you have a really like collagenous crappy ground meat like it's just a bad grind then you can uh you can put it in a, a crock pot or a slow cooker or a stew and it'll be much more much more easily eaten and digestible because it gets broken down that's what i was doing when i i had we had bought like a whole bunch of ground meat in whole foods that was on sale and it was just mm. like the most garbage collatinous like i don't know they didn't grind chuck like they ground something else i don't know what it was um, which is the problem with ground meat. You never know what you're going to get. Um, so we just, I just started putting in the crock pot cause that was the only way it was edible. If not, you're like spitting out all these like really, um, collagenous tough pieces. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode in the next episode. We will be digging into just two questions. Uh, one regarding cod liver oil, including whether cod liver oil is an ideal source of vitamin A or retinol and whether we should be concerned about the omega-3 content of cod liver oil. And we'll also be answering some questions regarding the croissant diet, which is something that we had addressed in previous episodes. And we'll be talking specifically about the idea that we want our fat cells to be insulin resistant to lose fat. We'll be discussing whether keeping insulin low is the key for fat loss and what hormones do regulate fat loss. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening elsewhere, please leave a review or five-star rating on iTunes. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. If you have any questions that you'd like us to answer on a future Q&A episode, you can send those in to j at jfeldmanwellness.com. That's j-a-y at j-a-y-feldmanwellness.com. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, maybe these are related to the different topics that we touched on today, 
uh, but maybe they're completely unrelated symptoms. Maybe this could be chronic cravings and hunger, chronic pain or joint pain, gut symptoms, low energy or fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, uh, weight gain, hormonal imbalances, or any other sorts of chronic health uh, symptoms or chronic health conditions, whether that's autoimmune issues, diabetes, heart disease, or on from there, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.